As a pastor, I feel that it's important to speak into the moment, you know, always addressing our current circumstances and the situations that we're facing. I always want to bring the eternal message of good news and what good news means amid the situations that we're facing in our world. But if I'm honest, as I look around today, I found myself a lot of the times without words. That's maybe a little rare for me. If you know me well, you know that I'm someone who can talk pretty much about anything. But in this season, I'm finding myself without much to say. I'm overwhelmed. There's so much going on in our world that words maybe aren't coming as easy as that they used to. 13 weeks ago, the whispers of an uncontrollable reality emerged. The news had been telling us that a new illness was spreading across the globe, but you know, like those before it, we thought maybe we could handle it. We, we thought that maybe the precautions that we had, that maybe history was on our side. It meant that we could face it without much disruption. You know, that's kind of how we are. We look at the world and we think that this won't affect us. I don't know that we had any idea what it would look like. But then for me, as I started to see college basketball tournaments being canceled, I, I saw the NBA soon to follow. I knew that when sports that make a lot of money were closed for precaution, that we were in uncharted waters. And little did we know, for 13 weeks, we have faced a new normal. It, it looks anything like normal as the pandemic still ravages our world and takes a shot at humanity and society in ways that we've never seen before in our lifetimes. Thousands of lives have been lost with no immediate end in sight. And we talk about life opening back up, but even as we look around, we see that that doesn't really look the same. This new normal hasn't become normal yet, and what new normal looks like most of us don't really want to accept as normal. It's a shadow of what we recall, and we're afraid that it's going to stay this way. And if I'm being honest, the unknown impact of reopening up things of our halted life sits in the back of my mind, and it makes me scared. Thirteen weeks ago, this was all we faced. This was the national conversation. Then another conversation began, a much-needed conversation, as people stood up in protest. This time, these protests were across all 50 states and even across our entire world. And for the first time in my life, I have hope that the world is finally going to address the evils of systemic racism. But the cost to get here is heartbreaking. How many more voices crying out for justice will be silenced by a system a system that has been created by the sin of racism and a history in need of repent. Watching that broken system and those who support it close their ears and push back against the voices of the oppressed, it makes me angry. And while we face these issues, I can't seem to get past, uh, I'm seeing that we can't seem to get past the division and those who continue to stoke the fires of division and disunity among us. One human family continues to, to be divided as those in power find strength in our differences instead of our collective story. Our lack of imagination in talking through our stories, our differences, in dreaming about a better future for our children. 
The lack of that makes me sad. I'm not without words. This is what I'm starting to realize. But those words, rather than sometimes being articulate and well thought out and pulled together, look more like words like scared and angry and sad. And I know that I'm not alone in feeling these because I've talked to so many of you. What I said today just now, I hear echoed in the voices of my friends and in this church. And there is a reason for this. This year has brought us crisis. It's brought us upheaval. It's brought us uncertainty in ways that so many of us have never experienced before. Our bodies and our minds have responded with anxiety and sadness and anger, emotions that we most often associate with people experiencing some kind of grief. Some of you are experiencing the loss of a loved one. For others, it's a different kind of loss that you're facing. But we are all facing something in this season. And that something is leading us to grief. David Kessler is the world's most foremost expert on grief. He co-wrote a book called On Grief and Grieving, and his co-author, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, originated the concept of the five stages of grief. Now, there's a lot of discussion about these stages and whether they're stages at all. In many ways, these stages can look just like a tangled mess One way that I tried to describe it is like that unruly extension cord. I had one of these this week that you pull out of the shed and you begin to unwind and you can't even find the end of it. It's just sort of a mix-up of all of these different cords all sort of weaving together. The more you pull on it, the more tangled and more of a mess that it becomes. That's one way to maybe think about grief. Another way that it's been described is as a roller coaster, doubling back on itself, leading us to that phrase, a roller coaster of emotions. Whatever metaphor we may use to talk about these emotions, we've all experienced them in times of loss. What we also need to recognize is that we've experienced and we're experiencing those emotions today. In talking about this reality, David Kessler, in a recent interview, said this. Now, this is a long quote here, but I'm going to help us to see what's happening here. Listen to what he says. He says, We're feeling a number of different griefs. We feel the world has changed, and it has. We know this is temporary, but it doesn't feel that way. And we realize things will be different. Just as going to the airport is forever different from how it was before 9-11, things will change, and this is the point at which they changed. The loss of normalcy, the fear of economic toll, the loss of connection. This is hitting us, and we're grieving collectively. We are not used to this kind of collective grief in the air. He continued on addressing the other parts of this that I think many of us feel. He says, we're also feeling the anticipatory grief. Anticipatory grief is that feeling we get about what the future holds when we're uncertain. There is a storm coming. There is something bad out there. With a virus, this kind of grief is so confusing for people. Our primitive mind knows something bad is happening, but you can't see it. This breaks our sense of safety. We're feeling that loss of safety. We are grieving on a micro and a macro level. And then 
he concluded like this. Your work is to feel your sadness and fear and anger whether or not someone else is feeling something. Fighting it doesn't help because our body is producing the feeling. Now listen to that again. Listen to what he says. Your work is to feel your sadness and fear and anger whether or not someone else is feeling something. Fighting it doesn't help because your body is producing the feeling. So David Kessler here tells us that that's our work. That's our job. That's what we're to do in this moment. But I, want to, I don't want to stop there. I don't want to simply give us advice. There's another layer that I want us to explore. See, I think for far too long when it comes to grief, there has been a tension where grief meets faith. When we experience suffering, the answer by well-meaning people has often been, you just have to have faith. Many well-meaning people have cut off the grieving process with a misunderstanding of what God looks like. We're told, just have faith. We're told to let it go. People who can't seem to get suffering to line up with their understanding of God tempt us to ignore pain, to numb it, or even worse, to view it as wrong. We've been told to not experience the stages, the roller coaster, the tangled up mess that comes with grief. And I want to say this as clear as I can possibly say this today. That when it comes to grief and our faith, when people tell us that grieving is not trusting, when people tell us that grieving is not having faith, when people tell us to just simply get over it, to let go of it, that advice is wrong. The danger in running from grief is it can actually hinder our relationship with God, with others, and with ourselves. We have to work to feel our emotions, to name them. We have to experience them, to know that we have a heavenly Father. This is what I wrote, and this is what I want you to hear. A heavenly Father who not only listens to us, but also sits with us amid our grief. This is the incredible power of the cross. This is the incredible power that we see in the picture of Jesus. Not a far-off God who doesn't experience the reality of our world, but a God who came and was among us, who suffered on the cross, who bore the weight of sin and death, who understands our suffering. And as we grieve, He sits with us Amid that. So we have to work to feel our emotions. We have to work to name our emotions. We have to experience them. We have to know that our Heavenly Father listens to us. We find this advice in a letter to the early church. 1 Peter 5, 6-7 says this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Let me read that verse one more time. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Humbleness and anxiety don't seem like words that go together. 
these verses teach us something about the intersection of faith and trust and grief. You see, a proud person thinks that they can handle things on their own. They think they know better. They think that God isn't doing a good enough job and that they can just figure it out. See, this is the temptation that we talked about before. It's actually a stage of grief called denial. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with denial. Dr. Ronnie Janoff-Bowman says this, Grieving appropriately means allowing ample time to remember and feel the loss, as well as embracing occasional opportunities to distract ourselves and regroup. But fully ignoring our grief and the source of that grief is unhealthy. Fully ignoring our grief and the source of that grief is unhealthy. What I want to add to that is this. It's also unspiritual. See, according to this passage in 1 Peter, humble yourselves. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety in him because he cares for you. See, according to this passage, ignoring our grief and not bringing it to God, that's not trust in God. It's the exact opposite. I wrote this in my notes, that our grief is built on our anxiety about what we've lost or what we're going to do. And then this, ignoring that grief is to say, we don't trust God and that we have a better way to handle it. We may be afraid to show our sadness, our fear, and our anger. You may be afraid to show that sadness to other people. You may be sad to show that fear to others. You may, be sad. You, you, you may find it hard to show that sadness to God and that fear to God and that anger to God, especially when that anger is expressed at God. But here's what I want you to hear. I know He can handle it. I know that God can handle your fear. I know he can handle your sadness. I know that he can handle your anger. I know he can do this, that God can handle it. Because scripture is filled with people expressing their most raw emotions to God. Now, one of those places that we find that is a book in the Bible called Lamentations. It's a book of public lament written at a time of the destruction of Jerusalem, about 600 years before the time of Jesus. Now, to read this very honest book is to experience the humiliation, the suffering, the despair that the people went through. But, but I want you to see this. It's a, book, it's a book of public collective grief. It's kind of amazing when you think about it that rather than deny their grief in the source of their grief, the author of this book invites us into their experience. 
Rather than not telling us about how they felt about this terrible moment that happened to their culture and their people and their city, rather than ignore it, rather than not talk about those emotions, rather not express their fear and their sadness and their anger, it's sometimes that anger and that sadness and that fear expressed towards God, rather than just ignoring it, they did express it. And they invite us to experience that lament with them. Now listen to this. Three chapters into it, we read these words that speak to us today as we wrestle with our grief. Listen to these words. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassion never fails. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. Let him sit alone in silence, for the Lord has laid it on him. Let him bury his face in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him offer his cheek to one who would strike him. Let him be filled with disgrace. For no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. There's so much going on here, but there's something that I want us to see. In verse 23... In 22, 22 and 23 says this, Because of the Lord's great love, we're not consumed. For His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That line became one of the greatest hymns ever about God's incredible love and faithfulness to us. Yet that verse sits right here in a book called Lamentations. Right here in a book that is about public lament and grief. Amid this public lament, this public grief, we hear this author say, great is his faithfulness. I can cast my anxieties on him. So how do we hope amid this grief and loss? What do we do with the emotions we feel? What do we discover in the people of God in similar times of uncertainty and grief? During this sermon series, we're going to explore the landscape of these questions and the intersections of our emotions and our faith. We're going to look at stories of people who experience grief. We're going to look at their faith, their misunderstandings, and the correction God gave them as their understanding grew. And while there's a lot to explore, there's something with which I'm certain. I'm not without words in this time of collective grief and uncertainty. But those words are words like scared and angry and sad. And I want to say that it's all going to be okay, but right now, I won't deny what I feel. I won't deny that there's something to grieve, but I'll take that grief to God. And while I don't have all the answers... I will simply lay my head against my heavenly Father's chest 
and let him hold me. And maybe, in the mid, amid my grief, uncertain with what words to say, just laying my head on my Heavenly Father's chest and listening to His heartbeat will be enough. Let's pray. God, I thank You. I thank You for today. I thank You for the opportunity for us to bring our grief to You. I thank You for the stories that remind us not to deny what we're feeling, but to bring it to You, to give it to You, God, to cast all of our anxieties on You. Father, thank you for being big enough to handle our grief, our sadness and our fear and our confusion and our anger, God. Father, help us in these collective moments to wrap our arms around each other as you wrap your arms around us. And it's in your name that we pray this morning. Amen.